Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 13, Autumn in Kiev. Thanks for listening in. So last week we looked at how Yaroslav's three sons, well I say last week, it was two weeks ago. So two weeks ago we looked at how Yaroslav's three sons clubbed together to form a kind of Rus triumvirate or Troika that ruled during the period that took us from 1054 to almost the beginning of the 12th century and featured the usual fraternal infighting, the emergence of rival sub-princedoms via the appanage system, and numerous raids from the new kids on the block, the Cumans. This week, we're going to cover the early 1100s and see if A. we get more of the same, or B. can the Kievan Golden Age get itself back on track, or C. is it six of one and half a dozen of the other. Well, as I said at the end of the last episode, the clue is in the title. But I'll explain more about that in just a minute. Before I do, there's just a couple of pieces of admin that I'd like to cover off. The first is my normal spiel about how to get in touch with a comment or question about the podcast, which you can do via the website, which is historyofrussia.podbean.com, via Twitter at historyrussia1, or one word, or via email nordicworld at outlook.com. But also, it'd be really great if you're enjoying the show for you to follow me or subscribe either via the website or on whichever platform you listen in on. And thanks to Shiona or Siona, uh, KizTKD and Glencory2, who've done just that. And thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And then finally on the admin bit, if you're really enjoying things, then a five-star rating or comment on Apple Podcasts would be massively appreciated. And it would also help to spread the word. Then I thought I'd just give a mini recap of what's gone on in our story so far, because there have been so many similar names. I mean, sometimes I get confused. So 
We started off well, a few months ago now with the foundation of the Rus state in 862 and its first three semi-mythical rulers. We had Rurik, Oleg, who was possibly Rurik's brother-in-law, who died from a snake bite, and then Igor, Rurik's son, who was literally ripped apart from, by the Drevlians. And then moving on to the mid-10th century, we had Sviatoslav I with his impressive mother Olga acting as regent for the first part of his rule and wars against the Khazars, Bulgars and Byzantines. And then his sons Yarapolk and Vladimir took their turn, with the latter bringing in Christianity, and they were followed by Sviatopolk the Accursed, who probably murdered his brothers Boris and Gleb, and Yaroslav the Wise and his law code and Pechenik disabling forts. And then finally we had the Triumvirate, and that brings us bang up to date to the year 1093. So there, I just thought that would help put things in perspective. Okay, so back to what I was saying a couple of minutes ago. So why autumn in Kiev? And why am I using autumn as a metaphor? If indeed it is a metaphor, I'm never quite sure. And apologies to listeners in the US and Canada, but fall in Kiev sounds a bit ambiguous and doesn't quite have the same poetic ring to it. So autumn in Kiev it is. So why? Well, autumn in the UK can be a beautiful time of year. And I know you're probably laughing, but it really can. It's possible to get calm, sunny conditions, particularly during September and October. But all the time you have this nagging feeling, well I do, that the year is ebbing away and then the clocks go back, the days get darker, the leaves turn yellow and you know that inevitably winter is just around the corner. So let's transfer this image to Kiev, just before the turn of the 12th century. The sunny uplands of Yaroslav's reign are behind us and whilst there's no sense of impending doom, yeah the Cubans are becoming a pain, the Apennine system is watering down Kiev's importance, although not Novgorod's, and the Triumvirate hasn't perhaps given us that warm, cosy feeling. But surely the largest state in Europe, and one of the most powerful and prosperous in the region, can handle a few setbacks, pull itself together and flourish. So we're going to explore the next 40 years and see whether the Ruslands experience September's mellow fruitfulness, November's cold rains, or October's sometimes frustrating mixture of the two. So first off, let's meet the episode's leading characters, and in order of appearance we have Sviatopolk II, Isaiah Slavich, Vesevolod's son, Vladimir II, Monomarch, and his son, Mustislav the Great. And there's also an intriguing supporting cast that features an old friend of the podcast, someone else with links to Anglo-Saxon royalty, and someone else with incredibly long arms. So let's crack on and meet them all. And we'll start with Sviatopolk II, who was the son of the senior triumvir Isaiaslav, who we met in last week's episode. And he, Sviatopolk that is, rather luckily took over in Kiev in 1093 on the death of his uncle Vesevolod. So why luckily? Well, for two reasons. First of all, he wasn't Isaiaslav's eldest son. He had two elder brothers, but the eldest, Yarapolk, died in 1087. And then when the middle brother, Mustislav, also died, Sviatopolk suddenly became one of the front runners to take over in Kiev. But surely, I hear you ask, 
As Vesevalod was the last surviving member of the triumvirate game of musical chairs, why didn't one of his sons get to take over? And the answer to that very good question was that the rules, in inverted commas, of succession were changed in an attempt to put a stop to any further squabbling between the rival sub-princedoms, so that the eldest member of the ruling dynasty, e.g. Sviatopolk, who was born in 1050, became the next ruler, leaving Vladimir Monomarch, the Sevalot's son, who was born in 1053, out in the cold. But to be honest, this changing of the succession goalposts had little to no effect, and the infighting continued, even though further attempts were made, with the most important being congresses held in 1097 and 1103, to try and establish an agreed ruling hierarchy across all the different princedoms in the lands of the Rus'. And unfortunately for Sviatopolk, it wasn't just internal unrest that caused him sleepless nights, although having said that, he seems to have been the instigator of most of the time. Because the Cumans were still a thorn in the side of the Kievans, and two key battles were fought in 1093, with the Rus losing both, and then in 1096 there was a major Cuman incursion led by Sviatopolk's father-in-law, Turgo Khan, uh, Sviatopolk having married his daughter Oryena, which reached the outskirts of Kiev and saw several monasteries ransacked. But apart from that, very little else seems to have happened, although there are two things that are worth mentioning. Domestically, Sviatopolk was married three times, firstly to a Bohemian princess, and they had three children, Zubslava, Predslava and Yaroslav. Wife number two was the aforementioned Oliena, and that marriage produced a further four children, Anna, Maria, Bryacislav, and Isaislav. And then lastly, he was married to Barbara Komnena. Now, the Komnena were a very famous Byzantine family, and Barbara was a Byzantine princess, although some of the sources have the view that she was a semi-mythical figure who probably didn't exist, so I'm sort of scratching my head uh, as how anyone could be married to a mythical figure, but there we go. And then for us, one of the most notable aspects of Sviatopolk's reign is that he was the man in charge when our old friend Nestor produced his primary chronicle. Now, no one's clear on how much Sviatopolk had to do with all of this. He was a pious man and was keen on restoring some of the churches in Kiev, but there doesn't seem to have been any kind of direct link between himself and Nestor. From Nestor's side of things, all that is mentioned is that he was a supporter of Sviatopolk's policy of favouring Slavic monks and church officials over those from either Greece or Byzantium. So there doesn't seem to have been even a whiff of official state sponsorship for the Chronicle, but whether or not there was, or Nestor simply just produced it in his spare time, we do owe him an enormous debt of gratitude, Nestor that is. I've often criticised the Primary Chronicle, as a lot of what it contains is either downright myth or ruricid dynasty propaganda. But without its semblance of truth, I for one would have been lost, because at the very least it provides a baseline. OK, a pretty tenuous baseline at times. I mean, remember Olga and the Drevlians and the birds, for example. 
But Nestor's heart seems to have been in the right place, and I think he was just trying to do the best that he could with a fairly scant canvas. And just a last thought on this, no one's actually sure what Nestor actually did. Was he an amateur historian and the author of some or all of the work, or simply a collator of what was already there? Probably the latter, but whatever his involvement, I reckon he deserves picking up. So thanks Nestor, I couldn't have done it without you. Okay, onwards with the narrative. In 1113, Sviatopolk's lengthy but unremarkable time, lengthy, around about 20 years, so yeah, good time in charge, but it came to an end, because quite simply he died in the spring of that year, and we don't know any more than that, other than his cousin, Vladimir Monomarch, has now come in from the cold, and is the next man to rule in Kiev. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just before we start with Vladimir's time in charge, let's examine why he was called Vladimir Monomarch and not Vladimir, or more correctly, Volodymyr Vesevolodich. And I think after that attempt, I'm glad he was called Vladimir Monomarch, although it probably wasn't one of my worst. It's down to the fact that adopting the surname of the mother was an established Byzantine practice. If, uh, and that's bold and underlined, the mother came from a more exalted background than the father, which I can understand, but it's a bit of a kick in the teeth for poor old Vesevalod, but maybe a kick in the teeth that he deserved. I don't know. Anyway, we're told that when Sviatopolk II died, the citizens of Kiev revolted, over what, we don't know, and they asked Vladimir to come in and rule over them. And for the next 12 years, he did exactly that. And now it was his turn to pick a way through more of the same Rus internecine bickering and Cuman raiding, whilst also finding time to marry three times, and as has come to be expected, have a whole host of children, all with either the same or similar names to those of his relatives, with a couple of exceptions, one of which I'll come on to later. And for some strange reason that I cannot fathom, Vladimir II's reign is seen to represent a second golden age in Kiev. He's known for enacting further reforms and laws, much like his grandfather Yaroslav did. But apart from that, and naming a few towns after himself, I can see very little difference between his time in charge and that of his predecessor Sviatopolk, and yet the chronicles paint him as the better man. One thing that does fascinate me though, and you'll have to indulge me a bit here, is that it's very likely that his first wife was a lady called Githa, 
who was the daughter of one of my historical heroes, Harold II Godwinson of England. So Harold Godwinson was King of England for just over nine months in 1066. And during that time, he faced a double invasion of his kingdom, first from the Norwegian king Harald Hardrada, which he defeated, and then secondly from William of Normandy, which he almost defeated. And in between the two, he had to march his troops all the way up from London to Yorkshire to fight Hardrada, and then all the way back down to the south coast of England to fight the Normans. And all of that at the age of 45, which sounds young today, but in the 11th century was not a young age. And so for me personally, it's nice to know that Githa's marriage to Vladimir forms a connection between the Saxons in England and the Kievan Rus. And interestingly, is not the only connection between the two entities. And I'm going to cover that more in detail in the next episode. Anyway, Vladimir died in 1125. And again, we don't know how. But now it's time for his eldest son, the half-Saxon, half-Rus, Mustislav, to have his turn in the misty autumn sunlight. And he, interestingly, earned the sobriquet The Great. So let's check out his credentials and see if he stacks up. Mustislav was born in Turov and, as his father's future successor, served his apprenticeship in Novgorod from 1088 to 1093, and again, after a brief stint in Rostov, between 1095 and 1117. After that, he more or less served as co-ruler with his father, Vladimir Monomarch, until the latter's death in 1125. Now, Mustislav's life was spent in constant warfare with the Cumans in 1093, 1107, 1111, 1129. The Estonians in 1111, 1113, 1116, 1130. The Lithuanians in 1131 and the Princedom of Polotsk in 1127 and 1129. So you get the picture. He fought a lot. And the Princedom of Chernigov was also... Um, another entity that he fought against this time in 1096 and at that particular battle he defeated his near relative uh, Oleg of Chernigov who I'm not sure if you remember but he was the son of Sviatoslav II who was the second of the two triumvirs to rule in Kiev. Mustazov also had numerous churches built in Novgorod of which the St Nicholas Cathedral in 1113 and the Cathedral of St. Anthony Cloister in 1117 survived to the present day. And later he would also erect important churches in Kiev, notably his family sepulchre at Berestovo and the Church of Our Lady at Podil. In 1095 he married uh, Princess Christina Ingersdotter of Sweden, and together they had ten children, six daughters and four sons. And then when Christina died in 1122, he married Lubyava Dmitrievna, the daughter of Dmitri Savidich, a nobleman of Novgorod, and a further two children were produced. So again, Mstislav was a busy man, particularly on the military front. Maybe impressive, but I'm not so sure great is the name I would have given to him. And there's also some uncertainty around another event, but if and whenever it happened, it certainly proved to be momentous for the future. And it concerned the person with the long arms that I mentioned earlier, 
and that person is Vladimir the second son and Mstislav's brother Yuri Dolgoruki. And Dolgoruki means either long arms or of the long reach. Now we'll hear more about Yuri in a future episode, but he's worth mentioning now because as legend would have it, he, and inverted commas again, discovered or set up a small settlement in the northeastern part of the Rus lands in the sub-princedom of Rostov Suzdal, and that place is, of course, Moscow, which, as I'm sure you know, goes on to play a major part in our story. But anyway, to start wrapping things up for this episode, it's 11.35 and now Mstislav is dead, and the Chronicle notes that he was the last ruler of the United Rus lands, and that upon his death, the land of the Rus was torn apart. So in conclusion, it's the beginning of the end, and the autumn leaves are falling as we inevitably knew they would. But it's not just fracturous infighting and the Cumans that have caused the decline. There's a bigger story to tell, because it's also autumn in Constantinople. In the mid-11th century, the Byzantine Empire fell into a period of difficulties caused to a large extent by the neglect of its military forces. Nikephoros II Phocas, John Simiskis and Basil II, remember them, had shifted the emphasis of the military divisions, or the Tagmata, from a reactive, defence-orientated citizen army into a force of professional career soldiers, increasingly dependent on foreign mercenaries. But mercenaries were expensive, however, and as the threat of invasion receded in the 10th century, so did the need for maintaining large garrisons and expensive fortifications. Now Basil II, or Basil the Bulgar Slayer, to give him his proper name, left a burgeoning treasury upon his death, but he neglected to plan for his succession, and none of his immediate successors had any particularly military or political talent, and the imperial administration increasingly fell into the hands of the civil service, and incompetent efforts to revive the Byzantine economy resulted in severe inflation and a debased currency. So now the army was seen as both an unnecessary expanse and a political threat, and so a number of standing local units were demobilised, further augmenting the army's dependence on mercenaries who could be retained and dismissed on an as-needed basis. But at around the same time, Byzantium was faced with a new enemy, as its provinces in southern Italy were threatened by the Normans who had arrived in the peninsula at the beginning of the 11th century. And during a period of strife between Constantinople and Rome, culminating in the East-West Schism of 1054, remember that from a couple of weeks ago, the Normans began to advance slowly but steadily south. But at the same time that troops were being sent westwards to try and stem the Norman tide, Constantine XI Monomarchos disbanded elements of the Eastern army and this had a catastrophic effect on the Empire's defences, culminating in the disastrous Battle of Manzikert in 1071, where the Byzantines suffered defeat at the hands of the Seljuk Turks, who went on to occupy the Empire's heartland in Anatolia. Now, although the Komnenian dynasty managed to stop the rot during the late 11th to mid-12th century, this would prove to be an Indian summer, as long-term the writing was well and truly on the wall for Byzantium, and it never really recovered. 
And all of this had a massive knock-on effect to the empire's finances and subsequently trade. And for the Rus in Kiev, who had been so dependent for so long on the riches spreading up the Dnieper and the Volga, it would prove to be another nail in the coffin, and the good easy days were over. OK, we'll leave it there for this week. Autumn's nearly over, and the signs there are that winter is going to be a harsh one for the Rus. But I'm going to take a break from the endless power struggles involving princes whose names end in either Slav or Polk, the breakup of the Kievan Rus, Yuri Longarms, and the travails of the Byzantines, well, partly. And next time, we'll instead take a look at the Empire's elite fighting force, the Varangian Guard, which, as I mentioned, provides us with a further link between the Rus and the Anglo-Saxons. So until then, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll see you all soon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.